The scripture reading today is from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. Certain individuals came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to discuss this question with the apostles and the elders. So they were sent on their way by the church, and as they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, they reported the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the believers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and said, It is necessary for them to be circumcised and ordered to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met together to consider this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, My brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that I should be the one through whom the Gentiles would hear the message of the good news and become believers. And God, who knows the human heart, testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and in cleansing their hearts. By faith, he has made no distinction between them and us. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ just as they will. The whole assembly kept silence and listened to Barnabas and Paul as they told of all the signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, My brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first looked favorably on the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. This agrees with the words of the prophets as it is written, After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the dwelling of David, which has fallen. From its ruins, I will rebuild it, and I will set it up, so that all other peoples may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles over whom my name has been called. Thus says the Lord, who has been making these things known from long ago. Therefore, I have reached the decision that we should not trouble those Gentiles who are turning to God, but we should write to them to abstain only from things polluted by idols and from fornication and from whatever has been strangled and from blood. For in every city, for generations past, Moses has had those who proclaim him, for he has been read aloud every Sabbath in the synagogues. The word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection. Pray with me. 
God, we ask that your, your spirit would speak this morning, um, that your spirit would make it abundant and clear the things that um, each of us uh, need to hear um, as individuals, um, but also as a community. Let us hear your voice as you are calling us to be more inclusive, to create more belonging, more love for those who are different than us. And I pray this in your name, amen. Does anybody know why they call it the World Series? This is a question that uh, the late Christopher Hitchens uh, opened with when he was arguing against the validity of the Christian religion at a debate, which Chris, Chris Hitchens, if you know him, he was a public intellectual, outspoken atheist, was wont to do. Um, and he asked this question uh, to an auditorium full of seminary students. Why do they call it the World Series when it's a game that no one else plays? And Hitchens remarked that when he posed this question specifically to Americans, uh, the answer seemed to be obvious. Of, of course, it's called the World Series. It's our game. And that answer, although humorous, uh, Hitchens was dissatisfied with, so he traced down the answer, and he went on to reveal that from his findings, the origin of this name, the World Series, has nothing to do with being an American. The New York Series was first sponsored by the New York World, a newspaper company that was long out of print, and that no one remembers. Now, Hitchens is using this illustration. Here's the point to that. Hitchens is using this illustration to caution Christians against having a very personalized view of their faith, that my faith is something that's just about me and my relationship with God. And what Hitchens did not realize is how prophetic his words were actually of Western Christianity, that for a very long time, Western Christians have often seen ourselves at the center of God's plan for redemption. Furthermore, uh, Hitchens also didn't realize that this pull that us Western Christians feel towards placing ourselves at the center of God's plan is not just an existential impulse. It's a theological one. That this impulse isn't just uniquely American, it's uniquely Christian. Those are strong words for a Sunday service at 10.42 in the morning. I'll unpack a little bit more of that in a second. Um, but this belief is one of the reasons why I think we approach a passage like this um, the passage we have this morning, where I approach it with a kind of uh, indifference, I guess. Uh, and it's not just because uh, to us moderns, this passage is essentially about a church business meeting. I don't know what your experience is with church business meetings. I do know that all of us don't like meetings in general as a culture, but you do not know boring if you haven't sat through a church business meeting. 
Fred knows. You, if you haven't sat through having the minutes read of business items that were achieved the last meeting, you do not know boring. Um, That's one of the reasons why I believe we won't be doing meetings in heaven. Um, But it's not just that we approach this text with indifference because we find the content dull. I think we find the content redundant. Of course our inclusion is a given, right? Our inclusion into the people of God, us Gentiles, of course that's a given. Why wouldn't it involve us? Why wouldn't it involve us forward-thinking, tech-savvy, post-evangelical, progressive Christians? Why wouldn't it involve us? Where does that come from? Where where does that, that impulse that you and I have to read our particular brand of Christianity into the text where, where does that come from? Why do we read ourselves so easily and readily into the text when in fact we are the foreigners, the strangers who've been brought in? And so the way that the text challenges us this morning is us to remember who we are and our place in the people of God. And that our inclusion into the people of God, our invitation into the story was not what was anticipated. It was certainly not anticipated by the earliest disciples of Jesus. And it was no small matter. This is what so much of Acts is about. The question of what do we do with the Gentiles? What do we do with them? Now that that these Gentiles are followers of Jesus, what do we do with them? How do we, how do we do table fellowship? How do we worship together? How do we do community and share life together? What does it mean for the Gentiles to be included into the people of God? That was the question for these earliest disciples. And there was no roadmap for that. Jesus didn't explicitly mention it. And so it caused quite the controversy The drama comes to a head at our passage when one group of Jewish Christians says that in order for Gentiles to be saved, they must be circumcised and follow Torah law. And biblical scholars take this position to mean that this means making Gentiles Jewish proselytes, which was a commonplace practice in that time. Bottom line, in order for the Gentiles to be included into the people of God, this means that they need to live like Jews. This was the view. This is what it means to belong into our community. You need to adopt our culture. You need to adopt our customs, our way of life. It's a unity by assimilation. And Paul and Barnabas represent a group of believers who says, no, 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 God is is doing something new here. God isn't starting over with Israel, but through Israel, God is bringing peoples of all tribes, tongues, nations to God's self. And so these Gentiles, they don't need to adopt our customs and our culture in order to be included because that's not the basis for their salvation. The basis for their salvation is grace. It has nothing to do 
with any earthly merit. It has nothing to do with your culture, your skin color, your ethnicity. It's all because of the grace of God. But this debate grew so contentious among these two factions that they had to convene in Jerusalem to settle this matter. And I won't rehash the results because all of us know how it ended. All of us know which side uh, won the day. But it is sobering to think that on the eve of the 4th, when we sell, our country celebrates its independence, that these nationalistic impulses have been present with us from the very beginning. And that's why the work of, of doing community well is not a joke. It's not a joke. And so for these, these Christians who want to do this unity by assimilation, they really can't see that embracing the other doesn't mean the loss of their identity and loss of who they are. So I got married pretty young when I was 23. Uh, I don't know if I just dated myself when I said that, but I don't care. Uh, I married my high school sweetheart. Um, we'll actually be celebrating a nine-year anniversary uh, this coming week, July 7th. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I received that. I received that. Hey, man. I love you. If you're watching this. Um, some of the best marriage advice that I got uh, before I was married was from a friend who told me to ignore all of the terrible marriage advice that I would receive. And if you're, you get married as young as I did and uh, you're going for it, uh, there is no shortage of people who will impart really bad marriage advice to you. I mean, just, just kind of all of like these really one-sided views of what being in a committed relationship uh, is. Uh, you know, like, you'll lose all of your freedom, or uh, all your life is just going to revolve around that person, or you just be, you're going to just turn into that boring couple. And it's just like, uh, all these projected fears, all these experiences are kind of placed on you. And um, it wasn't my experience when I got married, and that's not to say that things uh, weren't difficult, but it, they definitely weren't as joyless and cumbersome <laughs> as people made it seem. And I think that when it comes to being in a committed relationship, when we think about being in a committed relationship, whether it's through a partnership, marriage, or, or even a friendship, um, it's difficult for us to imagine the loss of life when we embrace another person, we welcome another person. And, and I think that is very similar to how some of these first, earliest Christians might have felt when they were inviting ethnic outsiders into their community. It was so difficult for them, them to imagine that the loss of life did not mean loss of self or a loss of their identity. And so they respond... We have responded, we respond often not very well when we have that fear. According to Willie Jennings, history has shown us that the church has often resorted to unity through assimilation, through conquest, or through segregation. 
And I wish I could say that this kind of, of nationalistic impulse was all in our past, that that's just, you know, in our past, that us Western Christians, that, that we're different now, that we know how to accept cultural differences. But that would be a lie. Now, unlike these early Christians, the nationalism that you and I have adopted doesn't come from embracing the Jewish tradition, but from a wholesale rejection of that tradition. And Israel is a people. I'm going to get a little bit technical here, so try to hang with me. Theologians like J. Cameron Carter and Willie Jennings, whose work I'm indebted to in this sermon, uh, have argued that Christianity gives way to white supremacy a Christianity that gives way to white supremacy is a Christianity that is steeped in supersessionist theology. Supersessionist theology, put simply, is this idea that the church has fully replaced Israel. And so as the Western church has over time distinguished itself from Israel as a people, we've formed a new identity, one that is white, and Christian. So if you're wondering how we get a Christianity that supports imperialism in the age of discovery or the slavery of indigenous peoples or segregation in the Jim Crow era, J. Cameron Carter argues that supersessionism is the very theology that sets the conditions for Christianity to become a religion of whiteness. This is what he argues. The West's accomplishment was one in which Western, mainly Gentile Christians, no longer had to interpret their existence inside another story, Israel's. Stated differently, whiteness is the accomplishment of interpreting the self simply by reference to oneself. And in this respect, it is the uniquely Christian accomplishment of no longer having to understand Christian identity as unfolding within another reality, the reality of Israel's covenant story with Yahweh. In other words, insofar as as it is a distinctly Christian phenomenon, whiteness is the accomplishment of no longer having to leave behind a prior reality so as to enter into another one, although this is precisely what Abram, Hagar, Jacob, Ruth, and the Ethiopian eunuch, to just name a few, had to do. Where does this impulse to center our tribe, our particular brand of Christianity, our values, our culture, where does that impulse come from? I wish you could say that it comes from fringe groups in our tradition. But it actually comes from a theology that is so deeply embedded in the Western Christian imagination. It comes from this fundamental theological assumption that our inclusion into the people of God is our Christian birthright, which we must defend at all costs. And we've forgotten this story. That we are not self-made. We've forgotten that we are connected to a tradition and to a people that was long in place way before we arrived. But the deep error in supersessionist thinking is not just in how it has been weaponized towards marginalized peoples, but that supersessionism makes us think 
too highly of ourselves. See, that's the error of these earliest Christians, is that they see themselves as the gatekeepers of the people of God. Since they fear their loss of identity and of their nation, they believe that they need to retain a certain standard of cultural purity. That's up to them. And that's when Peter poses this question to them and says, why are you challenging God? Why are you placing too much stock in human action, in human agency to form new community instead of responding to what the Spirit of God is doing in the present? And that's all throughout Peter's speech. If you look at the text closely, Peter speaks very little of human initiative. It's quite the opposite. When it comes to the Gentile Christians, Peter's placing close attention to what the Spirit is doing. Who is the one who's calling the Gentile nations? God. Who is the one who's giving them the Spirit? God. Who is the one who makes no distinction between them and us? God. Peter and later James see that the formation and the preservation of the people of God is something that belongs to God alone and does not live and die on human action. God is the author of God's people. And if forming new community is about God, then we don't get to decide who's in and who's out. It's all about responding to what the Spirit is doing in the present moment. And that's why Jesus says, I am the door. Not the church is the door. Jesus says, I am the door. As if to say, gatekeeping is something that is reserved for the divine alone. And that is why the image that Jesus gives his earliest followers is not of a gate, but of a table. We are not called to defend heaven's gates. We are called to invite people in. And that's a grace to us because it keeps us from believing that we get to decide who is truly of the people of God and who's not. And it keeps us from perpetuating the same racial, social, and cultural divides that the Spirit is working to dismantle in our world. So what does this mean for us? There's two points of application here. I I included application intentionally because if you listen to me preach long enough, you're like, what's the application? So if that's you, I had you in mind. And here's the application. First is, and I'm also going very Protestant here. I'm using alliteration. So remember and recommit. Remember and recommit. So let's start with remember, remembering our place in the story of God. We need to remember that we are foreigners and strangers to, as we were included in the people of God. We need to remember our place in that story. And I speak really specifically to white Christian brothers and sisters who are in this room. If you're serious about racial justice, We need you to take off the Eurocentric individualized lenses 
And we need you to recover a reading of the text that doesn't make you the majority, but sees yourself as the minority. Because that's not just helping you. It's helping us see us minorities. It helps us see ourselves in the text. It makes room for, for seeing ourselves as part of the people of God. And, and part of what the Spirit is already doing in our culture. And that kind of reading, that kind of fuller picture, is what helps us build the beloved community here at City Church. And so that's one way. It also means understanding the hard work of how the church has been complicit in racial oppression. And that is really hard work, and it's a process, and it does not happen overnight, and it takes time, and it takes courage. It takes courage, and it takes prayer, and it takes a willingness to fail. So how do you start doing that? There's opportunities for us to grow and learn t- uh, together as a community. If you sign up uh, for the Christianity and Relations race class that Faith and Justice is putting on in July and August. Make that a priority. Make those meetings a priority. If you're serious about creating community, make those learning opportunities a way that you can grow and the way that we can learn together. Go. Make that a priority. Take a friend with you. Discuss it in your small group. Reading and learning will help us Better reading scripture better and learning together will help us better remember our place in God's story. And the last thing, recommit ourselves to embracing cultural diversity. When we think about embracing the other, do we automatically think it's a loss of myself, a loss of who I am? Or do we actually see that other cultures have something unique to bring to our community, that they have a unique charism given by God for us? Do we have that kind of respect and value for different cultures and ethnicities here and make space for that? What are the ways that we make space for that as a community? It takes more than just being warm and inviting. It takes inviting people to bring their whole self, their whole self to our community. One of my friends, uh, Kat Armas, says there's a huge difference between you're welcome here and you're needed. You contribute to this community. When I reflect on Jesus' life, I can't help but notice how he often communicates the latter, inviting folks to actively participate in what God is doing in our world. What does it look like to celebrate difference in this way? What does it look like to practice hospitalities in this way? Not in a patronizing or fetishizing way, but in a real way, saying, I want you to bring your whole self to our community because without it, our community is poorer. When you're not here, we miss out and we need your voice. We need your voice here. I really think that if we approached cultural difference in this way, it would change the way that we view and practice community here at City Church. So siblings in Christ, let us embrace the beauty of diversity as the people of God, and let us say yes to the Spirit's invitation to that today. Pray with me. God, give us the courage to love. 
Give us the courage to believe that in giving of ourselves and in loving fully and welcoming the other fully, that we will find life and we will find full life. I pray that even as we work towards racial justice here at City Church, I pray that as we try to discern and untangle our complicity and racial oppression, and I pray, God, as, for that as we seek to work towards shalom in our world. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.